Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. We're going to look at Daniel chapter 7 tonight, so if you would take your Bibles and turn there. And tonight, uh, as we talk about the future, we're not going to talk so much about how things end as much as we're going to talk about what's behind the end and what occurs after the end. And if you noticed on your outlines, uh, the title of the message tonight is Letting Eternity Be Your Dominant Reality. That's a mouthful, I know, and it's also a very, very difficult concept to keep your arms around in living life, isn't it? Letting eternity be your dominant reality. You know, we live in a world where there's so much stimulation that oftentimes that thought, that magnificent truth, eludes us. The fact is, is I'm afraid for many of us who are Christians, it's lost a lot of its practical vitality. We acknowledge it as fact, and certainly it is fact, but I think if you're like me, oftentimes the idea of eternity and a heaven, even the concept of heaven, feels like fiction. And because it feels like fiction, it loses a lot of its practical punch. In previous generation, eternity, heaven, that was the steam that drove the engine of a person's life. But in our day, I'm afraid that... Uh, a lot of that steam has been released through a pressure valve of a secular age. We want to talk about eternity tonight and the reality it should play in our particular life. And I hope that you'll consider this in a very serious way, something that maybe you'll even take and ponder and think about for the rest of the week, because I'm convinced that any man or woman who, to any meaningful degree, has become what God has intended for them in this life, has embraced not a fairy tale view of the future, but a very sophisticated vision of eternity at the very center of their soul. And it has been that grip on eternity that many times has allowed them to do spectacular things for God. You know, great things for God require a great price. It requires sacrifice. It requires endurance. It requires perseverance. Uh, I know as a pastor of a church, just like uh, many of you, that there are times where there's so much pressure, there's so much responsibility. I don't want that. I don't want to reach higher. And yet the thing that allowed people of the past, and even greats today, to reach higher more often because they really believed that there was an active eternity taking these actions into account, weighing them, measuring those efforts, recording them, and ultimately one day rewarding them. That's very important. William Wilberforce, the great Christian parliamentarian who in the 1800s labored for 50 years, 50, in order to abolish slavery in England, wrote these words later on. He said, The apostles who set on foot for the conversion of the Roman Empire 
and the great men who built up the Middle Ages, and even we, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were preoccupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Last week I had the opportunity, as many of you have had or maybe will have, of taking a little break from work and being able to spend some moments of vacation. And we took our family to Florida. And while we were there on the beach, one morning I picked up a local newspaper and they were giving an account of the loss of thousands of fish, these little mullets that have washed up on the beach. And they were wondering why all these fish had died. And the Florida Game and Fish Commission had come out and this article was about their findings. And what they had discovered is evidently these huge schools of mullet had been pressed into shallow water by larger predator fish who were seeking to devour them. So they sought these shallow waters for safety. But there had been so many of them and they were so crowded in these these waters, these shallow waters, that they deoxygenated the water. And they all smothered and suffocated and died and then washed up on the beach. You know, we Christians today are suffocating in many ways. Uh, not in that sense, but in another sense. We're suffocating because we've left the deep waters of eternity. We've moved into these little shallow enclaves. We've been forced in there by certain pressures, the unbelief of our day, by science and technology, by massive stimulation of entertainment that continually bombards us and after a while we almost get addicted to it, by pleasure, by success, by things, a multitude of things. We've been chased into the shallow waters because we've learned to focus on the seen and we've forgotten the unseen. And we've lost our strength and when you lose your strength and you gasp for spiritual air, a lot of times you don't have the strength to do great and courageous things for Jesus Christ. Many of us are probably like Henry Nuon, uh, the Dutch Christian who one day in honesty and great candor confessed, I want to love God but I also want a career. I want to be a saint, but I also want to enjoy the sensations of the sinner. I want to be close to Christ, but I also want to be popular. I want to be liked by everybody. I am double-hearted and double-minded, and I find that I have a double loyalty. Does that sound like somebody who's suffocating in shallow waters? There are a lot of people like that drowning in the shallow sea of self because all they can see, the only time frame that they have embraced as reality is the time frame called now. Just now. Where's the conviction that heaven is the meaning of earth? Where are the people who believe that deeply and who live in the light of that eternity as if they really are convinced that it, not what we see, is the dominant reality. Well, that's where Daniel comes in. And I hope that you have enjoyed the series on Daniel. Daniel is quite a man under the pressure of critical decision-making, the threat of death, and just everyday living. Daniel was a guy who brought 
the light of eternity into his everyday life. And we're the better for it in being able to read about him. But you know, in Daniel chapter 7, uh, he gives us something else. And that's what we're going to look at this evening. He gives us a glimpse into eternity. Now, there are a number of symbols here that we'll be looking at. This is a symbolic description of eternity. But just like those beasts that came up out of the sea indicated nations that were real, real empires, these symbols also indicate just as much spiritual and heavenly realities. So you might turn there to Daniel 7. If you haven't already, uh, Daniel 7 as a chapter is this incredible vision of the events that occur at the end of time. But these two snapshots that we're going to look at, these two visions, are not necessarily concerned with just the end of how it ends, but what brings it to an end and what occurs after the end. That's what we're going to see tonight. So let's first of all look at what's behind the end, starting in verse 9. There's a courtroom vision uh, in your outlines. It says the courtroom vision of the Father. That's what occurs there. And if you've been with us through this series, if you're just joining us, I might have to catch you up a little bit, but in this chapter, we have been seeing Daniel lay forth the future for us in a grand way. What an awesome book this is of the future. And up through chapter 7, Daniel has kind of wowed us, I think, by helping us see the future from his perspective. And he saw that in the future there would be four great world empires. No more, just four. The last one having two phases. Now from our perspective, not from his perspective, we've been able to see those four empires come and go. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. They've all come. They've all been world-dominating empires. They've all passed off the scene. We have none since, but as I mentioned, that last empire, Rome, had two phases to it. The second phase, which is the focus of Daniel 7, is still yet future to us. It's an empire that's coming, a world empire that we have yet to see. And when that happens, and when that empire comes on the scene, then history will draw to a close. But that empire will come about because of a, a cunning individual that we talked about in the last message, a charismatic, arrogant, and yet utterly convincing ruler. You know, the world will never see an individual like this until that time. He is, in a sense, the ruler of rulers, He's better than Nebuchadnezzar. He's more powerful than the Caesars. He's more skillful than a Napoleon. He's better at deceit than a Stalin or a Hitler. And he can boast with his lips better than any George Bush. I mean, this guy is one incredible leader. He is the epitome of effective leadership. And for a time, he will look to you and to me if we live in those days. And there is, by the way, the possibility that we will, he will look utterly convincing. And he will be absolutely invincible. The ultimate man. The symbol for the world of the new humanity. And in a brief period of time, he will look to all of us somewhat heroic because of the way he brings order to planet Earth. And in time, he will be uh, so magnetic 
And he will be so powerful, and though it may seem strange to us now, but there will come a time, according to the Apostle Paul, where he can stand before the world and actually display himself as God. And he will have been so convincing that most of the world will say, yes, I agree. You look just like him. They know if you're a believer living in that day, that's going to put you into a, a certain degree of turmoil, uh, of gut-wrenching tension. And the reason it will, and you need to hear this, is he will look so believable that the things that you have held dear, the things that you have believed about Christ, about a coming kingdom, about salvation, those things won't look so real compared to him. You'll be able to see him and touch him and feel him, and the now will look so real that what you believe will pale in comparison. And it'll seem like a dream. So much so that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 that when that day comes, and this is his words, many, many will fall away. We're talking about Christians here. Many Christians will be deceived and they will fall away. And you know why? It's because they have eaten the fruit of the now. And they have forgotten about eternity. And because they have been addicted to the now, this guy is now. And he will sweep them off their feet. They have been given to the seen, not the unseen, as the driving force of their life. And yet Daniel tells us here in Daniel chapter 7 that even in those moments when everybody wants to follow this incredible leader, there are things, real things, going on in heaven that are about to bring all of this to an end. You might look at the last line of Daniel 7, verse 8. This great leader is uttering great boast. He's always uttering great boast. He's always telling what he can do. Now, whether he brings all those things about, we don't know. But he's always doing that, and people are believing him because, as I said, he's so believable. But at the same time, people are saying, this is so real. I mean, we're going to have it for the first time. Peace on earth. Even while that's taking place, something else is going on, and that's the verses that we'll now read, starting in verse 9. As Daniel hears these great boasts in the background, he is still looking at this vision, and he sees, as it says, thrones set up. And suddenly, this incredible individual, the Ancient of Days, comes in and takes his seat. His vesture is like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool, and he has a throne, and it's ablaze with flames. It has wheels that are burning with fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him, and thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. This is a courtroom scene. And the court sits, and there are these books, and they're open. And then as I kept looking, because of the sound of the boastful words. See, these boastful words are still speaking. This reality that everybody thinks on earth is going on. But even while this great leader is boasting and still throwing out all kinds of ideas and direction, in that moment, the beast is slain. And his body is destroyed and it's given to this burning fire. Now here's what's taking place. 
We have this final world empire. And what an empire it is. Finally, man will be able to enthrone himself. That's what this leader stands for. And the world will rejoice in this. And earth will appear for the first time like the global village of peace that so many yearn for today. It'll take place. And according to Matthew 24, and according to the book of Revelation, it will be, if I can use these words to help us get a feel for that day, it'll be like a controlled and orderly Sodom. It'll be a place where sin and lust and greed and pleasure and murder and deceit and materialism can all be woven together under the, under the direction of this leader. Somehow it can be in some incredible way woven together and appear as good. And people will be saying on earth, we can have it all. But you know, it'll only be for a short time like that. And then the wheels fall off and everything begins to unravel. And then judgment comes from heaven. And that's what we see here in this vision. Eternity, the real reality, intervenes. If you look at verses 9 and 10... Uh, you'll see what I consider kind of an intimidating picture of God. You know, this picture, this symbolic picture that's given here is not of most people's thought of God as this grandfatherly type gentleman who's kind of laid back and he kind of hugs on you and loves on you. No, this is, a, this is an intimidating picture of God. This is almost a fearful picture of God. One you're not sure you want to get too close to. All these thrones are being set up, and I'm sure in the midst of these thrones, there's a giant throne that represents authority, and the Ancient of Days comes and sits on it. That doesn't call Him God, it calls Him the Ancient of Days because it's speaking of His eternality. See, this little tin despot on earth looks real, but He's fantasy. But the Ancient of Days, who represents eternality, that's reality. Notice his countenance and his looks are all white. That represents his purity. But probably the dominant feature in this little image is fire. Because you know what fire represents? Fire represents reality. You know, there are two things that fire does. Think about it. Fire reveals and fire consumes. Fire burns away everything that's not permanent. You see that from time to time when some house burns down or there's some fire that breaks out in a business. Fire burns away everything that's not permanent. And fire also destroys that which is worthless. And as for this ultimate ruler with this incredible ego and all these boasts, well, before the reality, the dominant reality of eternity, he becomes as nothing. Just in a short moment, that's all. That's what you see here, just one verse. And yet, He will have dominated the whole earth for years. In just a moment, He becomes like a piece of trash. <laughs> have you ever thrown a Kleenex into the fire? And it's gone in just a moment? It becomes as nothing? Well, that's what happens to this individual. Look at verse 26 of the same chapter. It says that. It says, but the court will sit for judgment, and then this ruler's dominion will be taken away. And then it uses two words to kind of give you a little added punch to how it's taken away. Annihilated. 
destroyed forever. Well, that's an awesome picture of God, and it would be probably irresponsible if we just said, well, that's good for that guy. I mean, he's, he was evil anyway. But you know what? The court sits for us too. You know, this, this courtroom vision of the Father is not just for this despot ruler. It's for us. I mean, the Scripture is absolutely clear that there comes a day when the court convenes and the books are open and our name is looked up. Where the breath of fire is breathed towards you and me. Not to throw us out of the kingdom of God, not if we are believers in Jesus Christ, but it is breathed our direction to see what is permanent from the way we've lived. Boy, that brings a great question. question worth pondering. And the question is, what's going to be left? Think about your life for a moment. There's a lot of things that we do, and we do them for different motives and different reasons, but there does come a place where God judges those things. And He has a way of separating that which is just simply trash from that which is gold. And He breathes that fire, whatever that will be, it'll probably be just His inscrutable understanding of our lives, but there will be no debate. But there will be some things, hopefully, that will be permanent. But what will be left in your life? Martin Luther had two days on his calendar. You know, all of us have day timers, and we've got the months, and some of us have even years planned out. Luther had two days on his calendar. He had on one side the word today, and on the other side, that day. And he wanted that day to constantly be impacting today. You know why? Because he knew those were the only two days that counted. The only day you have in your life is just today. That's assured right now. And the only other day you have assured is that day when you will stand before Almighty God and it'll be a little bit fearsome. You know, you'll want to draw close, kind of like with a lion and pet him, but you'll also want to pull back a little too. You'll have two conflicting emotions to embrace and not to get too close because it, it, it's awesome. That's how God will feel. He will take all the things that you have done and it will be looked at. It will be evaluated. And some of it, and I hope for everyone in here, a lot of it, you'll get a commendation for those things because some will remain. Well, what will be left? God's judgment will answer that question, but then we move from that vision to a second vision. If you look in verses 13 and 14, we move from the vision of judgment to what occurs after the end. And what occurs after the end is a new beginning. And the new beginning kicks off with a celebration. And that's what you see in verses 13 and 14, the celebration vision of the sun. Daniel says, And I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. If you want to see Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, here is a great place for you to circle these words, son of man. Here he is, approaching the Father, and he was presented before him. And what you have going on here is, in a sense, an award ceremony, if I can use those terms, a coronation of righteousness. And who better to start off this award ceremony than the Son of Righteousness and to receive His awards? 
And that's what the vision is here. So in verse 14, he comes forward, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Well, that's exciting, but let me tell you what's more exciting. We'll be cheering at that moment, but when the Son of Man receives his awards, even Daniel teaches that he turns around and then he shares that glory and that power and that dominion and that rulership with his people. And he'll share more with some and less with others, but he shares it with his people. Look at verse 27 of the book of Daniel. It says, Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given, and notice this, doesn't mention the Son of Man at this point, but will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. It'll be given to them, to us, through Jesus Christ, just like eternal life comes through Him to us. Now, to help you, I want to mention one phrase there. It says, the saints, the people of the saints. You might just underline that in your Bible, and you might write above it like I have, just what is the literal Hebrew there, holy ones. See, it mentions that all this glory and power and dominion and reward is going to be given to the holy ones of the highest one. And then you might just record in your notes, this does not mean the any ones. We're not talking about just anyone here. We're talking about a select group in God's camp. The holy ones of the highest one. Not the any ones of the highest one. The holy ones. The ones who believed in the future. The ones who believe, hey, there is a coming dominant reality. And my life is going to reflect that in what I pursue, in the choices I make, in the priorities I establish, in how I stand in this perverse and evil generation. I'm going to live that way. I'm going to be faithful. Those are the holy ones. Those who sought God's best. That's what Luther, by the way, was longing for. He wasn't afraid of that day, but what he wanted on that day was where when the fire came his way, it would reveal something of permanence, of real substance. And he would be set aside in the camp of God's best, not standing there kind of this pitiful, whimpering, individual full of ashes and clutching a few ashes of a life that was lived for the scene with total ignorance or apathy towards the unseen. That's where he wanted to be. This last week, my, uh, one of my sons attended Jimmy Dykes' basketball camp. Maybe for some of you parents out there, you had the same opportunity. It was a great camp. He had some tremendous fun. Looked forward to it every day. We're glad that he was able to go. And all that week that he was there, he kind of reveled in that experience, but he really didn't give much thought, as probably very few of those campers did, that while they were going through all their activities and having a lot of fun, that there were a number of men there, coaches, who were evaluating them. You know, sometimes you can say, ah, oh, you know, this is just a lot of fun. It's just going to... Start is a lot of fun and end is a lot of fun, but that wasn't all there was to the camp. There was some evaluation. And that 
suddenly came home with a punch where on Friday when the camp ended, suddenly they gathered everybody around and they said, men, we're going to give some awards. We're going to give the hustler award. And you can imagine all these little boys thinking, did I, did I hustle enough? You know, and then all of a sudden, probably some of those thoughts about how they cut up and how they loafed and how they complained, cried to the coaches, it was too tough or whatever, kind of started haunting them a little bit. Because that whole week, they didn't give any thought that there was an evaluation going on. Yet there was. Now there's the awards. Now it all comes to a head. The one-on-one -on -one award, the team award. Did you know in the kingdom of God, there are going to be awards given. Fact is, you can take your Bible and go through it and you will even see some of what those awards are. Now, they, they're, it's not most valuable player, you know. I don't know that that's in there. Uh, sportsmanship award or whatever. But I can give you a few. You might just jot these down and give you five awards that are listed in the Scripture. You can look them up. Uh, here's a great award that I would like to have. It's the Crown of Life Award. James 1.12. Maybe tonight you can read that. But the Crown of Life Award is going to be given to those individuals who resist seduction, who endure temptation and don't succumb to it and they persevere. James says they'll receive the crown of life award. Then in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25, there's the imperishable crown award. That's given to those who deny themselves for the service of Christ. They so believe in eternity that they give up things that they could do for themselves so they can serve the cause of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about that sometimes when you're serving? That God is taking note of that? It's not just grind. But maybe there's an imperishable crown involved. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 speaks of the crown of joy award. That's for discipleship. That's for those of you who take the time and effort to lead people to Christ and spend time getting them on their feet spiritually. There's an award there. In the first service this morning, I had the great privilege, it was a surprise to me, by the way, but the great privilege of introducing the gentleman who some 20-odd years ago led me to Christ. We hadn't seen each other for years and years. There he was, sitting out in the service, and I had him stand up. And I can remember, not only did he lead me to Christ, but for weeks afterwards, with me not wanting to pursue him, he pursued me. Would take me out as a young college student, buy me lunch, and would talk to me about what Jesus Christ wanted to do in and through me. You know, I believe that my commendation for Him will not be near what a coming commendation is going to be like. It's the crown of joy award. Then in 1 Peter 5, verses 1-4, through 4, there's the crown of glory award. That's for those who assume some form of spiritual leadership. For us here at our church, it might be in a number of areas, but when you take on that, that's a sacrifice. And it's a sacrifice that doesn't go unrecorded. Don't be naive. Giving up those things is not something that just kind of passes away and you've done your duty and everybody forgot about it because nobody mentioned me. No, it was clearly marked in the books. And when the books are open, it'll be there. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8 mentions the Crown of Righteousness Award for consistent faithfulness. That's the Hustler Award through this life. Well, those are just some of those. The point I want to make is, is that on Friday at this basketball camp, as my son sat with hundreds of others, not everyone got an award for the camp. 
And I want you to know when the award ceremony comes in this celebration, not everyone in God's camp is going to get a reward either. It's not for everyone. It's for those who are the special ones. For those who took eternity serious. For those who exercised faith, real faith, in a life that was constantly saying, that stuff's not real. But they believed it anyway. And their life was marked by good works because that faith led to something of production. That's a clear teaching of the Scriptures. And that's a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. Well, let's look at how all this is summed up in the book of Revelation. And this is an incredible statement. <clears throat> when I read it, it may not hit you that way, but for a young man a number of years ago as he was sitting next to a tree, as he read those and just kind of pondered the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ, he began to weep and those tears led to pinning some music in just a few hours and we enjoy the majesty of that music every time we hear the Messiah played or sung. It was Handel who read these words and had that kind of experience, but it also sums up in a statement this, these two visions that we see in the book of Daniel. Look there in verse 15. I'll pick it up in the middle. It says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces, and they worshipped God, saying, We give Thee thanks, O God, O Lord God Almighty, who art and who was, because Thou hast taken Thy great power and hast begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and their wrath came. Thy wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged. That's the first vision, and they were. And then the time came to give their reward to Thy bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear Thy name, to the small as well as the great and to destroy those who destroy the earth. You see, heaven is the meaning of earth. Heaven is the dominant reality for earth. Not security like those who came back from World War II thought when they came back from an from a ugly war and they thought, boy, if we can just get secure, just get a house, just get started, get a job, provide a good income, maybe have a club membership, Two cars, gosh, if we could just have two cars. So they did that through the 50s. And at the end of the 50s, they discovered that security is not the reason for living. So they thought in the 60s, maybe it was freedom. So we had a whole generation that overturned everything, thinking if we can just be free of any constraint, then we'll really live. And we went through the 60s. At the end of the 60s, they discovered that licentiousness was not, it was not the reason for life. So we went into the 70s and you thought, well, let's just get away and escape. So people indulged themselves in psychedelic hallucinations. They took drugs. They involved themselves in multiple sex partners. And they thought, boy, this is really living. But by the end of the 70s, as diseases were spreading across our country, and as we're still, even to this day, cleaning up that residue, found out that sex and drugs weren't the meaning of life. So we got in the 80s and we began to get conventional again. And we thought, boy, if we can just have it all. And we thought we could through the 80s. Have the best body. I can look like the best movie star. I can have 
the cars everybody else drives, the vacations, I can be highly mobile, I can do all these things. And so we did them all and we exhausted ourselves and we stumbled, tripped, and fell at the doorstep of the 90s, absolutely worn out. We found out having it all, it's not the reason for living. So now as we stand on the doorstep of the 90s, they're telling us that the next decade is going to be one in which people are going to simplify their lives and draw back and live in a more paced and balanced kind of way. Key word is going to be eliminate. Settle for less than the best. But you know what? In 10 years, that won't be the meaning of life either. Heaven is the meaning of life. And heaven should mark your day every day. It should mark your decisions, whether anybody sees them or not, because the books record them. It's not going to go unnoticed. We have a God who is just. That's scary. But for those who live by faith, that's exciting as well. You know, one of the things that's helpful for me in gripping, I guess, this eternal perspective is to think about great men, heroes of the faith. I have a lot of heroes, some of them who are even alive today. But there are also some good biblical heroes that I can just kind of munch on by opening the Word and looking at that. For instance, if I were a single, one of my heroes would be Joseph. Joseph is a great model of eternity as the dominant reality. I mean, here he was in Pharaoh's camp. He was in Pharaoh's house. And one day, Pharaoh's wife, this gorgeous, beautiful woman, does what thousands of young men fantasize about. She started chasing him around the house. Lusting after him. Crying out, lie with me. Lie with me. Well, there's some young men who would cut off their arm for that. And you know what beat through Joseph's heart? Why in the body? The passion that beat through his chest was eternity. And you know what he did? He ran out of the house. Now that's a hero. That's a guy who's going to get a crown. If I were a businessman or a businesswoman, I might choose somebody like a Moses. You know, Moses lived in a place where he had it all. I mean, he had a future. He grew up in a very upwardly mobile place of life. And to him was given all power and he had the position and the status to do almost anything that he wanted. And yet it says in the book of Hebrews that by faith, these are the powerful penetrating words, he left Egypt. He left it. How could he do that? Well, it says, because he chose the people of God rather than the passing pleasure of riches. You know, men and women, you will never count for an eternity as long as you live for your job. I'm not saying that a job isn't important, that success isn't good, but you will never count a whit as long as your job is more important than anything else. As more, as more important than a coming kingdom that you will live in. It's like John Tillotson said, he who provides for this life but takes no care for eternity is wise for a moment. But he is a fool forever. Think about eternity in what you do and the choices you make. Think about Abraham and Sarah who left the upper class conditions of Ur 
I mean, they had three chariots and probably a pool to boot, and yet they gave it all away, and they went out into this desert country. For what? Well, you know, at the end of the life, end of their lives, what they had? They had nothing except they embraced very close to their heart a vision of eternity. That's what they carried with them into the next life. You might think of C.T. Studd, the great English millionaire who gave away his fortune. How could he do that? People thought he was nuts. But he did it because he had a vision of eternity. Think about the Apostle Peter. Jesus called him to leave his vocation and he left. And men, listen, he also sold his boat. <laughs> he got rid of his boat. And for what? Well, I'll tell you what he got in return. He got turmoil. And he got sacrifice. And he got executed. But he held close to his chest eternity. Think about Eric Little, the great British hero of every young man in his day, the great Olympian, who could run faster than any man in his day. And yet he gave it all away. And he went to live in China and lived there in obscurity. And Britain mourned when one day they heard that he had died of dysentery. And they hung their heads and many probably said, what a waste. It's kind of like when I told people I was going into the ministry. So many of my friends came up, kind of slumped shoulder and put their arms around me and said, boy, I'm so proud of you. Boy, I'm so glad you're going to the ministry. I really admire that. As like translated, what a waste. What a fantasy. What about Jim Elliott, the great missionary who went forth to win Indians to Christ, but those Indians turned on him and they killed him. Elliot sums up all these people when he says, he is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, all these people are different, but what knits their hearts together is that eternity was their dominant reality. Well, what about you? What about me? Because this is a struggle for me. I don't know about you, but it is. And I, I think that the real vision I need is of the Holy Spirit. Each day, coming before Him and saying, Spirit of God, do a work in my life. Keep before me what is important. Because it's so hard to see just now. Not then. Now. Keep asking me questions. Keep reminding me. Ask me some hard questions. Like, when that day comes... When it comes, will it be for me a good day or will it be a great day? Ask me the question, when it comes, will I stand out in the eternal throngs that are there, those myriads, and be cheering for those on the platform? Or will I get called up to the platform? I need to hear that when it gets tough working this job or living this life. Will I be wearing a crown? Or will I get into eternity smelling of smoke only by the hair of my chinny chin chin? Just relieved that I'm there. Going, wow, I made it. Is that how I'm going to get there? Boy, don't let the gift of today get away from you. But take it and hold it close and use it as an opportunity of investment for that day.
Let me close with a famous statement by C.S. Lewis. He says, if we consider the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires for reward not too strong, but too weak. <laughs> That's interesting. This desire to want to be praised and acclaimed and rewarded. You know, you think of that as almost a little manipulative. But Lewis here says, because of the way God has set this out in the Scriptures, He probably finds our desire for these rewards too weak, not too strong. He says we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum simply because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Oh, may the Spirit of God help you and me not to be easily pleased because there is great, great reward in following Jesus Christ, not just in this life, but in the real life that's to come. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.